You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. Man, NASCAR every episode. Icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk 47 Kirk Street is the on podcast. the podcast. This is America. The Air Tour Sports Podcast. It we. is Monday, June 20th, 2022. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody had a great Father's Day weekend. I hope you got to spend time with the special father in your life. If you are the special father, I hope you were treated really well. Hope you weren't just given another tie or pair of socks. Hope you got a gift that you liked. Hope everybody had a great Father's Day weekend. Hope everybody's ready for a fun episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. And by the way, how about this? Final day of spring today, June 20th, which is a perfect segue to what we're going to talk about today. We are now entering the summer. We're entering the dog days of the sports calendar. But here's the crazy part. We are now less than a month away from SEC Media Days, which is the unofficial kickoff to college football. And so here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to open with, I'm going to basically reset college football for you in the, uh, everything that happened last year to kind of get us set up for the summer as we ramp up towards college football. I am going to give you what I believe to be the 10 biggest storylines in college football with one month until SEC Media Days, about, what, 10 weeks or so to the start of college football season. Just give you the recap, the oversight of everything you need to know going into the season, and then in the coming weeks, we'll break down all the stuff that we normally do in June, July, and August. Biggest games, uh, conference by conference, all that good stuff. Also, on top of the college football, there was actually a little college hoops news. North Carolina picks up a mega transfer, and we had another Legendary head coach, retire, Bob McKillop from Davidson. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, it's pretty straightforward, right? We are officially in the slowest couple weeks of the sports calendar. NBA Finals is done. Now, the NBA Draft is this week. We'll talk a little bit about the NBA Draft on Wednesday and on Friday. But there really isn't that much going on. But why I bring it up is because very quickly... College football is going to be here, and as I said to open the show, we are now less than a month from SEC Media Days, July 18th through 21st in Atlanta. We will actually have coverage from AT Media uh, at SEC Media Days this year. I'm so excited to have one of our guys down there, but I bring it up to say this thing is coming quick. College football is coming. It's going to be here before we know it. I think most of you who listen to this show, you probably follow college football 365 days a year. 
But I, I, I just think now, about a month out, it's a good time to just kind of reflect on what happened last year and start to look ahead this year because, as I said, over the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to be doing a ton of college football on this show. So what better way to get started than to give you what I believe to be the 10 biggest storylines in college football going into this year? For me, part of this is a way to kind of get everybody who's been in basketball mode or NBA Finals mode or college basketball mode just to kind of remember everything that happened last year and in the offseason, but then also to kind of look ahead to what the storylines are going to be. I know it's been a, a, a long time since we've really dived super deep into college football. This feels like a good time. I am giving you the cheat sheet for college football. That's what I'm here for, right? I do all the dirty work so you can sound smart at your summer cookouts, your barbecues, your uh, pool days, whatever. So let's get into what I deem to be the 10 biggest storylines going into college football now a month from SEC Media Days. First of all, number one, drum roll please. I promise we won't do a drum roll for all of them. The number one biggest storyline in college football going into this year, in my opinion, is the team that is basically the biggest storyline going into every season, and that is the Alabama Crimson Tide. No, this is not a Nick Saban versus Jimbo thing. I promise we are done talking about that until the week of October 8th when Texas A&M travels to Alabama. But why I bring it up is because I think Alabama, as weird as it sounds, might be the most fascinating team in college football this year. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's easy to forget this now, but never forget that we had real doubts about Alabama during last season. Now, it's easy to remember they made the national championship game lose to Georgia, but never forget, this was a team that was not a quintessential Alabama team last season. This was a team that when you look at the second half of the year, they did not play great football. They played, uh, you know, they lose to Texas A&M, obviously, right? And then from there, and we talked about this during the season, one possession game against Tennessee going into the fourth quarter, they end up winning going away. Six-point win over LSU after LSU had fired Coach O, and Alabama had six yards rushing in that game. Arkansas, a one-touchdown victory. Auburn, a multiple overtime victory just to get to the SEC championship game where everybody had given up, everybody picks Georgia, and then they shocked the world and beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. But leading up to it, everybody said this team's overrated, this isn't a vintage Alabama team. I talked about it on this show all the time. Well, they get to the national championship game, they beat Georgia in the SEC title game, they play Georgia again, and never forget, even though Georgia won, Alabama was up in the fourth quarter. And that happened in a game where they were completely beat up. Jamison Williams, their best wide receiver, their best skill position player, gets hurt early in the game, does not come back. John Mechie, their second best wide receiver, did not play in the game, got hurt in the college football semifinal against Cincinnati. They had multiple starting offensive linemen out. They had multiple defensive backs out that were important to what they did. And they still had a chance to beat Georgia. Just one problem, they didn't beat Georgia, and now they have all offseason to stew about the fact that they could have won the national championship, maybe should have won the national championship, and now I feel like we're getting a mini semi-revenge tour from Alabama this year. Now, it's one thing to have a chip on your shoulder, but here's the other thing. They got the best players in college football. They obviously have the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, Bryce Young. Uh, It goes without saying, the best offensive player in college football. The best defensive player in college football, Will Anderson. He is my preseason Heisman pick. I, I, I spent a significant amount of money on that future when I was in Vegas a few weeks ago. And on top of that, they have depth. 
They have experience on defense. Henry Toto at linebacker. Um, you know, Jordan Battle at safety. Eli Ricks comes over as corner from LSU. He transferred in. And then on offense, they revamped the entire skill position group through the transfer portal. Jameer Gibbs from Georgia Tech. Jermaine Burton from Georgia. Uh, Tyler Harrell from Louisville. And I look at this Alabama team and I say, okay, they're the most talented team in college football, with the best coach in college football, the best quarterback in college football, no disrespect, C.J. Stroud, the best defensive player in college football. They revamped through the portal, and they have a chip on their shoulder. Not to mention, by the way, they also have a very manageable schedule. If you've looked at it by Alabama standards, it's pretty manageable. Now, remember, they do play Texas in the out-of-conference. When we talk about biggest out-of-conference games, we will certainly get to that one. But they play at Texas. They play at Tennessee. But they also get Auburn at home. They also don't play Georgia or Florida from the east. They get Texas A&M at home. They get LSU on the road in a year where LSU has a first-year head coach and is certainly rebuilding. They get Ole Miss on the road in a year where Ole Miss is coming off 10 wins, but they lose their offensive coordinator and their defensive coordinator. So best coach, best talent, manageable schedule. I am just telling you, be very afraid of Alabama. The number two biggest question of the college football season going in, how about my dogs? Love my dogs. Here's the thing, though. What do they do for an encore? First national championship since 1980. I know a certain segment of the fan base is happy and thrilled, and they're still riding that high. But we know college football fans. College football fans don't ever settle. There's no five-year grace period in college football. You won the national championship last year, Kirby. Now what do you got on your plate for 2022? And while I think, listen, I, I think the Georgia story is incredible. Made me look smart because I picked him in the preseason. But what I would also say, it's something I talked about when we talked about Arch Manning's recruitment last week. Georgia did get a lot of breaks along the way. And so why that's important to me is like I said uh, last week when it came to Arch Manning. You go back to last year, they got a lot of breaks. Um, you know, Florida goes through a coaching change. They don't get A&M, Alabama, LSU, or Ole Miss for that matter in the West crossover games. They beat a Clemson team that we didn't realize at the time was absolutely abominable, which we'll talk about Clemson in a minute. They get to the SEC championship game and they lose, where if that was a normal year and the Big 12 had a team good enough to be in the playoff and the ACC had Clemson good enough to be in the playoff, Georgia might not even get into the playoff last year. They do and they get revenge. And to their credit, they, they, they take care of Alabama, win the national championship, obviously take care of Michigan in the semifinal. But there were a lot of breaks along the way. And my question for Georgia becomes, what if there aren't all those breaks along the way? And what about in a season where just the talent level is going to be a little bit down? Now, Georgia is right up there with Alabama in terms of best recruiting programs over the last four, five, six years. Georgia's backups were better than most teams' starters last year. I get all that. And even though we don't know the names at Georgia, they're going to be awesome. But I do think it's worth noting. You lost not only... A, a lot off of a historic defense. I mean, you lost a ton. Remember, five first-round picks were selected from Georgia just off their defense. Let's see if I can name them all. Trevon Walker, uh, the number one overall pick, wasn't even one of the stars of that defense. Uh, Jordan Davis obviously went to the uh, went to the Philadelphia Eagles. I, you know, I'm not going to name all, all four, five. Devontae Wyatt, uh, somebody else, Quay Walker, both went to the Packers, and Lewis Seen went to the Minnesota Vikings. I did that off the top of my head. I was going to try to Google it. Point being, they lose five first-rounders and the heart and soul of that defense, N'Kobe Dean, a third-round pick to the Philadelphia Eagles. And I sit there and say, I, I, I get 
that the talent level is higher at Georgia than pretty much anywhere in college football. But that is a lot to lose off of one team. What happens if you don't get the breaks? Obviously, the schedule, listen, the schedule, because it's the East, is pretty manageable. You look at who Georgia has to play this year. Obviously, we know that they're going to play Auburn every year, but Auburn, obviously, they're going through a lot of stuff with Brian Harson, which we'll talk about in a minute. They do, this is Georgia now, open with Oregon. They do get Florida on the neutral field, Tennessee at home, so it's not as though it's going to be a cakewalk, but you talk about uh, the cross-division games in the SEC. Auburn at home, which is struggling, at Mississippi State, no A&M, no Alabama, no LSU, no Ole Miss, no Arkansas. And I sit there and say, they're going to be good again. I guess just my question is, what happens if they don't get some of the breaks that they did last year? Are we back to Georgia being 11-1, and 10-2, SEC East champ, but not quite national championship contender? That is what is most interesting to me. We'll get back to the SEC in a minute, but number three in terms of the most fascinating storylines for Aaron Torres in college football this year, let's go from the southeast to the far west, and let's go to my hometown, my adopted hometown, I'm from Connecticut, obviously, of Los Angeles, California, where Lincoln Riley has arrived as the USC head football coach, and what I can tell you about this situation is this. I have lived in California now for 10 years, got here in the, the summer of 2012. At that time, if you remember, that was the year, by the way, USC was coming off a 10-2 and season. They came into the season number one. They fell apart under Lane Kiffin. But I bring it up because I can legitimately say, I've been in LA for 10 years. This right now, this moment in time, is the most excitement I can ever remember for USC football. I would say it's the most excitement for any Pac-12 program since I have been here, and that includes Oregon when they were still competing for national championships. When I first moved here, I think my first year here was Chip Kelly's last year. Then, of course, they played for the first ever college football playoff title game where they lost to Ohio State. I still think the hype and excitement and intrigue for Lincoln Riley surpasses that. This is a historic program that we know when USC operates at the highest level, they're one of the few schools. They can build something to compete with Alabama. Something to compete with Georgia. Something to compete with Clemson, Ohio State. There aren't very many programs that you can say that about, right? Like, like Oregon's an incredible program. I don't know that even at their best they can ever really have a team that's, that's literally player for player, uh, position for position, on par with Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, schools like that. USC can't. Now the question becomes... How soon can they do it, and what is realistic for this year? Now, in terms of what you need to know for this year, first of all, Lincoln Riley comes, but make no mistake, he brought a lot of talent with him. Obviously, Caleb Williams. I do think the Heisman hype is a little much for Caleb Williams. At some point in the summer, we'll do you know realistic Heisman winners and unrealistic Heisman winners. I do think the, the Caleb Williams stuff is probably a little bit overblown right now, but Caleb Williams is still a superstar. And on top of that, you get Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikov winner, top wide receiver in college football. We certainly talked a ton about him. Remember, Travis Dye, a star running back from Oregon, transferred in. Uh, Mario Williams, one of the top wide receivers at Oklahoma, followed Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley to USC. I guess he followed Lincoln Riley because he committed before Caleb Williams, but you get the point. Latrell McCutcheon, star cornerback from Oklahoma, transfers to USC. There's some players along the defensive line. So this team's going to be really good right away. But again, the most interesting thing about USC is you don't bring Lincoln Riley to LA and you don't pay him somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million. I don't think we know the exact details. You don't pay him that much to just be good, to just be 10-2, and 
to even just win the Pac-12. You bring him in to, as I said, build a program, a team that can compete with Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, maybe Texas A&M at the highest levels of college football. And so I'm especially intrigued to see what happens this year, what is realistic, and what isn't. Now, the Pac-12 is obviously the Pac-12, so there are wins to be had. And you can say what you want. Last year, listen, I don't even count last year with USC because of the fact that uh, coaching change, you know, the, whatever. But I bring it up because when you look at Clay Helton's track record, for as bad as Clay Helton was, I mean, these are his seasons. 10-3, and 11-3, 5-7, which was a disaster, 8-5, and five, and then 5-1 and one in a COVID year and played for the Pac-12 championship. So, even with... Uh, uh, I don't even know how to say this delicately, but Clay Helton as the head coach, the floor is like eight, nine wins. How quickly can Lincoln... What, what is realistic for this year? I, I'm beating around the bush. Let me get right to it. The schedule is manageable. Now, it's not super easy. They, do, they don't play Oregon, but they do play early in the season, or excuse me, late in the season. They play Notre Dame at home, who's obviously going to be good. They play at Utah, maybe the best team uh, in the Pac-12 this year. No Oregon, as I said. I do think it's worth noting USC will play, obviously, UCLA at the end of the year. UCLA has a chance to actually be pretty good once again this year. So it's just going to be interesting. You look at the schedule, the three out-of-conference games in addition to Notre Dame are Fresno State and Rice at home. They should be at least 2-0 going into Pac-12 play. They play Stanford early. You look at the schedule. They could be 6-0 going into Utah. Even if they lose to Utah, they could be like 9-1 going into the final two weeks against UCLA and Notre Dame. And then final thought on USC, and we'll move on. It is worth noting, remember this, the Pac-12 a few weeks ago announced they are the first conference that is switching up their championship game. It used to be the North winner versus the South winner plays for the title. This year, it's just the top two teams. Divisions are out, and so can USC, in year one, get to that Pac-12 championship game? Can they get maybe to a Rose Bowl as the Pac-12 champion? Fascinating to watch. Really quickly, number three, that? that's number, that was number three. Number four, on top of Lincoln Riley, how about all the other new coaches in new places? This is like, I don't think you can undersell how crazy the coaching carousel was. Think about on top of, so USC opens up, Lincoln Riley goes there. Here are the other jobs that open. Oklahoma obviously opened up, Lincoln Riley leaves, Brent Venables comes in. Brian Kelly goes to LSU. Marcus Freeman takes over for him at Notre Dame. Billy Napier is in at Florida for Dan Mullen. Mario Cristobal is in at Miami for... Uh, for uh, Manny Diaz, and of course, Dan Lanning, the, the Georgia defensive coordinator, now the head coach at Oregon. And so Lincoln Riley is a fascinating topic unto himself, but some of these head coaches, these new head coaches, are just fascinating to see how they do in year one. Obviously, the uh, let's just get into them one by one, but Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame, fascinating. I think you can argue he probably takes over the best situation, the culture's great, the roster remained mostly in staff, but again, Intact, I mean, but again, why did Brian Kelly leave for LSU? It's because he didn't believe that you could build a national championship contender at Notre Dame. Marcus Freeman feels otherwise. He's recruiting at an insane level for the 2023 class. But I'll tell you what, we're going to find out how good this guy is because the schedule is not easy starting in week one and opener at the horseshoe. Good luck to Marcus Freeman on that. They also play Clemson throughout the season. And then late in the year, as I said, they play at USC. Beyond him, listen. Miami, 
Miami's another really interesting one because, first of all, Miami was 7-5. This wasn't a dumpster fire like USC, like LSU. They were pretty good last year, and remember, they bring back the best quarterback in the ACC in Tyler Van Dyke, Connecticut native, no big deal. So Miami, you look at their schedule. They do play at A&M early in the season in the out of conference. They do play Clemson late in the season at Clemson. But outside of that, it's a pretty manageable schedule. Mario Cristobal has come in. He has upgraded the talent. I don't think he gets quite the credit that Lincoln Riley does for how he has used the portal, but I don't think we can undersell how good the talent upgrade is, and the talent was pretty good already under Manny Diaz. So you look at Miami. I think it's realistic that we're talking about an eight, nine-win team in year one under Mario Cristobal, and then it becomes can he turn Miami into Miami and much like Lincoln Riley, build a program that can one day compete with Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia schools like that. Beyond Notre Dame, beyond Miami, remember Florida, new head coach, Billy Napier, really fascinated by this guy. Uh, uh, coach's son, worked under Saban, actually worked under Dabo early in his career. He's taken over at Florida. But I will say this, he might, he might be one that in the long term has a ton of success, but in the short term, it might not look good this year. They have a pretty tough schedule, starting with Utah at home in week one. Woo! Good luck with that. You ain't bullying Kyle Whittingham's Utah Utes. Now, it's going to be hot in Gainesville. The weather might be a factor for those Utes, two Utes, all the Utes. But I'm just saying, that's a tough opener. This year, Florida has Texas A&M in their cross-division game. So they have to play Texas A&M and LSU. They obviously have Georgia. Tennessee is improving. So Florida's one. I like Billy Napier. I believe in the hire, but that one's going to be interesting to follow. I am not sold that he is going to be quite ready in year one or that this roster is ready in year one. Staying in the SEC, kind of the same deal at LSU, right? Brian Kelly's in. Brian Kelly believes he can build a national title contender at LSU that he could not at Notre Dame. Well, we're about to find out, but I'm not sure that this is the year quarterback just chaos they have like four guys all competing for the job Grant Nussmeyer who was there last year or Garrett Nussmeyer excuse me who was there last year uh Jaden Daniels who I'm not a fan of Miles Brennan a player who was was uh was in the program but has been banged up year after year after year and then on top of that just the depth and the the number of bodies in the program remember this was a program that for their bowl game they had like 42 players on the roster. Now, they did reload through the portal. I think they got 15, 16 guys similar to USC. But still, this feels like it's going to be a bigger rebuild than you realize. Now, the good thing is you're in one of the most richest talent areas in the country. Louisiana kids want to grow up playing for LSU, but it ain't going to be easy for Brian Kelly. And finally, another one that's just really interesting. And I just talked about the guy that left. But how about the guy that came in at Oklahoma? Remember, Brent Venables. The Clemson defensive coordinator is now in as the head coach at Oklahoma. And on the one hand, I think, you know, if you want to have your, um, you know, your crimson and cream glasses on, you can sit there and say, look, we haven't had a defensive presence forever. Brett Venables brings that. And what I will say in Brent Venables' defense, the players appear to love him. I was reading all these articles. They just talk about the energy that he brings, the excitement that he brings. He gets them fired up uh, just to be on the practice field. But he's got some tough shoes to fill. Lincoln Riley, for all the criticism, multiple Big 12 championships, multiple college football playoff appearances, Heisman trophies, best offenses in college football. What's Brent Venables' answer? Now, I will say on a positive with Brent Venables, I thought he did a really good job in the offseason kind of reshaping that offense. 
A lot of guys decided to stay. He brings in Jeff Lebby as his offensive coordinator. That was the offensive coordinator for Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin. He is going to put his stamp on this and Dylan Gabriel, the quarterback at Oklahoma. Really fascinating to watch. Really excited to see. Let's get to number five, then we'll take a quick break and come back for the next five of my 10 biggest storylines. Number five, I just mentioned that Brent Venables left Clemson. He was the defensive coordinator, now at Oklahoma. Those Clemson Tigers are the most, I mean, they are just fascinating from a narrative perspective. Because remember, this was a team that by their standard was very disappointing last year. They did finish 10-3 and overall. And Dabo did the spin zone of, we're the only program in America or one of only two or three programs in America. We could have 10 years and our fans are dis- 10 wins and our fans are disappointed. But you did have 10 wins and your fans were disappointed. And the standard at Clemson is college football playoff appearances in ACC championship games, and he fell short. Now, the good news for Dabo is they had like a cataclysmic number of injuries last year. Everything that could go wrong did. They opened with Georgia. Um, much more, you know, manageable schedule this year from the beginning. Obviously, you open with Georgia, but this year you open with Georgia Tech, but you do have to go to Notre Dame in the middle of the season. You do have an improved Florida State team on the road in the middle of the season, so it's not going to be easy. And then the other thing that I think you have to factor is a couple things. One, I mentioned they lost their offense, their defensive coordinator, Brent Venables. They lost their offensive coordinator, Tony Elliott. Obviously, those guys leave, and they bring other staff members with them. Tony Elliott, now the head coach at University of Virginia, if you'll remember. That's a lot of attrition on a coaching staff that hasn't had any attrition for years. So you have coaching attrition. You're coming off a disappointing season. You're a program, by the way, that really hasn't jumped into the transfer portal NIL world. Now, Clemson's taking care of their players like everybody else, but it's much more of the way it was supposed to be. Like, like They're not recruiting the way that Texas A&M is alleged to have recruited, the way that Texas may be allegedly recruiting. That's not who Clemson is, but they don't take transfers. They took one transfer this offseason. It was a quarterback who started his career at Clemson, left, and now is coming back. And I just don't know in 2022 if you can continue to run your program like that, especially, by the way, disappointing play at quarterback. DJ Uyla last year, 55% completion percentage, nine touchdowns, 10 interceptions. I'll be fascinated to see how long the leash is with him. Remember, this guy was not good last year. They have a five-star Cade Klubnik behind him, and I will just be fascinated to see how patient people stay at Clemson uh, with Dabo Sweeney, who, of course, uh, you know, has built one of the great programs in college football. But this is kind of a swing year. You go 10-3 and three again this year, you go 9-4, and four, whatever it is, I think we start having the conversation of our Clemson's best days behind them. That said, great start to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do you want to take a quick break? We'll come back. We'll hit on the other five biggest topics as far as I'm concerned. Talk a little bit about Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. Talk a little bit about Texas and Steve Sarkeesian. Some hot seat stuff. I will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody. I am back. So back, baby. Good to be back. Good to be back. I want to continue the college football conversation. I will tell you really quick. Um, if you're more of a basketball person or if you're just not ready on June 20th to jump into college football, we're going to have plenty of basketball. One at the back end of the show talking about UNC, Pete Nance, transfer, big news in the portal. But then, of course, Thursday is the NBA draft. We'll have a preview on Wednesday, get into a lot of the stuff that we haven't already hit on yet. Friday, we'll obviously have a recap of the NBA draft. So a busy week, plenty of basketball to come, not only on this show, but later in the week. But I do want to get back to college football with what I believe to be the 10 biggest storylines of the 2022 season. We hit on the first five, the Alabama Revenge Tour, Georgia. What do they have in store following that national championship? Lincoln Riley at USC, the other new head coaches, Brian Kelly and Billy Napier in the SEC at LSU and Florida, respectively. Brent Venables at Oklahoma, Mario Cristobal at Miami, Mario, uh, Marcus, William, Marcus Freeman, excuse me, Marcus Williams, a former UConn basketball player. Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. That was number four, and number five, of course, was Clemson. So let's jump right into it. Those were the top five. Here is six through ten. Let's go back to the SEC with number six. And how about those Texas A&M Aggies? One thing you cannot argue, Texas A&M was certainly the most interesting team of the offseason. Sign a historically great class. They signed most of the class in December. That ruffles some feathers, feathers then. Then in February, they put a bow on the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football. It upsets Lane Kiffin in February. Jimbo Fisher has to defend himself. It upsets Nick, Nick Saban in May. Jimbo Fisher has to defend himself. Well, now a couple things. One, that class is officially on campus. They're not going anywhere. They have officially arrived at Texas A&M. And now two, the games have to start. And Texas A&M is kind of a really interesting program, and let me explain why. First of all, I do think from the Texas A&M perspective, right, from Texas A&M, not SEC fans, not Texas fans, not Alabama fans, not Big 12 fans, but from the Texas A&M perspective, talking to Texas A&M fans, going on radio, by the way, we started a Torres-specific Texas A&M account, Torres on Texas A&M, um, we started this weekend. But I bring it up because talking to Texas A&M fans, I think that most Texas A&M fans are actually very grounded in where they are and where they are going in the college football landscape. What I mean by that is just because Texas A&M signed the number one recruiting class in the country, I don't get the sense that Texas A&M fans feel like it's national championship right now or bust. As a matter of fact, I think talking to most Texas A&M fans, they feel like this is not the year so much as next year will be the year. So why is this not the year? First of all, 
quarterback's a big question mark, and not even necessarily in a negative way. But remember, last year they had a a kid named Haynes King win the starting quarterback job. He plays week one. Week two against Colorado, he gets hurt. And then from there, Texas A&M frankly struggled at the quarterback position, except for the Alabama game when Zach Calzada leads them to a stunning upset of Alabama. But Zach Calzada is gone. Haynes King is back, but it is far from a certainty that he is going to win this job. Max Johnson, who started the vast majority of LSU's games last year, he transfers in. On top of that, Connor Wegman, a five-star quarterback from the state of Texas, he is in. So right now, there's an old saying that in football, in, in college football, the NFL, when you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Texas A&M right now has three quarterbacks, and they so, so it'll just be interesting to see where they go. But keep in mind, with Texas A&M, they don't have a, an established starting quarterback. And then the other thing to keep in mind with Texas A&M is pretty straightforward. They are coming off a little bit of a disappointing season, 8-4. and four. Jimbo Fisher, one of the highest paid coaches in college football. That's obviously not what you're paying him for. I think, again, most Texas A&M fans, because of the recruiting class, they are being patient. But when you go 8-4, and four, when you lose to Mississippi State at home, when you lose to LSU after Coach O has been fired and he's basically coaching for the fun of it, not because it's his actual job anymore, when you lose to an Arkansas rival in a, in a rivalry game that you have historically uh, uh, dominated, when you lose to Ole Miss, a team that you have historically dominated, the fan base is frustrated. And so that is why Texas A&M is fascinating to me. Because I do think on the one hand, you can sit there and say, well, we're ahead of schedule, and this really isn't the year. The quarterback isn't established. That recruiting class, even though we've recruited well, the recruiting class that we just brought in, they're only going to be freshmen, and it really is a year away. Why it's interesting is because I think that's easy for a Texas A&M fan to say right now in June, everything's going good, recruiting's going well, Jimbo defended the program against Nick Saban, college base, you know, the, the baseball teams in the College World Series, everything's going great for the Aggies. But two things, what happens once the season starts? It's easy in June to be optimistic. It's easy in June to say we're a year away. But what happens if you take another weird loss? Again, you lost to Mississippi State last year. You lost to an LSU team that wasn't very good. You lost to an Arkansas team that you historically haven't lost to, and same with Ole Miss. What happens if you get smoked by Alabama early in the season in Tuscaloosa? What happens if you lose a game that the fan base deems is a game that you should not be losing? I mean, I could come up with any one of them. But you play Miami early in the season. You play Mississippi State early in the season. You have a stretch, by the way, of four straight games over five weeks early in the season where you do not play at home. Arkansas on a neutral field, at Mississippi State, at Alabama, by at South Carolina. So from September 17th through October 29th, you don't play at home. What happens if you go 2-2 two and two over that stretch? What happens if at one point you're 4-2 and two or 5-3 and three over the course of the season? Easy to sit here and say in June, everything's going to be fine. We're being patient. It's about 2023. We'll see what happens if the team struggles. And then I would also say, while Texas A&M fans have perspective, I don't know that the national media will have perspective. And I certainly don't know that other SEC fan bases will have perspective if A&M struggles. So that's going to be the fascinating thing. I've said it a billion times. I'm not going to belabor the point. But it's easy to have optimism in June if you start 3-2. and if you start 3-3, three and three, if you start 4-2, and two, if you start 5-2 and two even, is the fan base as optimistic? I will be curious to see how it all plays out. And then, of course, with 
this recruiting class, how do you handle so much star power, so much whatever? I think Texas A&M is just fascinating. Staying in the same state, number seven, I think you can argue that Texas is just as fascinating as Texas A&M. Texas, of course, is coming off an embarrassing year last year, right? I mean, it wasn't just, Texas hasn't been good in a long time, like national championship good in a long time, but year one under Sark was like comically historically bad. First of all, you get destroyed by Arkansas early in the year. Then you lose not one, not two, not three, but six straight games towards the end of the season. You lose to Kansas at home. You get embarrassed by Iowa State. You lose to Oklahoma. You lose to Oklahoma State. You lose to Baylor. And you lose to West Virginia. And so Texas is fascinating for so many different reasons. But one, you're coming off a 5-7 and seven year. And you're coming off a year where there is just total chaos. Where you have that whole monkey gate situation with the assistant coach and his girlfriend. And she had a pet monkey. And you can Google if you don't know what I'm talking about. You have the situation where, if you remember, a player got caught recording an assistant coach, Bo Davis, the defensive line coach, yelling at them. I think the player thought he was going to be sympathetic. I think most of us in the media and in the public said, dude, stop being soft. That's a coach coaching a bunch of soft players. Interesting how that worked out. And then remember in the spring, there was a player that called out his teammates saying, all these guys want to hang out uh, in Austin. They're not putting in the work. If you want to be at if you want to be in Alabama and Ohio State, you got to put in the work now. So you just talk about just a program that is just all over the map. Texas is just it's just unbelievable the chaos in that program. And what's going to be especially interesting is a few things. One, Steve Sarkeesian absolutely loaded up in the portal this year, and because the portal exists as it does, I don't think in 2022 you get the benefit of the doubt in a in a three, four, five-year rebuild. Because of the portal, because of NIL, there's no excuses. And I think at Texas, there's going to be no excuses this year not to be vastly improved. I think Texas fans, like Texas A&M fans, understand it's a process. I think Texas fans with due respect. I know it's easy to make fun of Texas and Texas and the Longhorns and Longhorns fans. I don't think most Texas fans think they're going 11-1 and and winning the Big 12. But you need to see significant improvement especially because of what you did in the portal this offseason. Remember, they went out and got Quinn Ewers, former backup at Ohio State from Texas, the former number one high school player in America. They went out and got Isaiah Nayor from uh, Wyoming, really talented wide receiver. They went out and got, frankly, a couple kind of questionable guys from Alabama where, if you remember, two years ago Steve Sarkeesian was during that 2020 national championship run. Jaleel Billingsley, the tight end. Uh, who had some issues with Nick Saban, no doubt about it. Ajayi Hall, who was like at Texas, but not at Texas, and he's on the roster, but he's not really on the roster, and nobody knows exactly what's going on, and is, is he with the team, is he not with the team, whatever. And so that is why Texas is so fascinating, because you have so many different dynamics at play, but nobody cares, and you absolutely need to see improvement in year two under Steve Sarkeesian. Finally, what I would say, and I said this a few weeks ago, I do think in the NIL world, if it's at all possible, as weird as it sounds, I think there is going to be less patience for big-time head coaches at big-time programs than there has been in the past if such a thing exists. 
Now, we accuse Texas A&M of all this NIL stuff. I've defended Texas A&M, whatever. Here's what I can tell you. Texas signed a top five recruiting class. Texas signed Quinn Ewers, who is basically the poster boy of NIL right now. A guy who was driving a, a big truck and this and, and kombucha and all these crazy things at Ohio State. He comes to Texas. He's now driving an Aston Martin. And when I look at Texas, two things stand out. I'm not saying Steve Sarkeesian's on the hot seat. But what I will say is, in 2022 with NIL, remember, boosters aren't just paying big money for head coaches. They're not just paying big money for assistant coaches and coordinators. They're not just paying big money for facilities. They're paying big money now potentially for players. And they want a return on that investment. And the other thing I keep coming back to with Texas and I talked about this a few weeks ago. We did it in a mailbag. There's a coach out there that has multiple national championships that I believe at some point will get back into college football, and his name is Urban Meyer. And I don't know when, and I do think there are only really a few programs that would realistically hire Urban Meyer. Maybe that's a segment we do here over the course of the summer at some point. But he's out there, and I don't think that's a guy that wants his legacy to be dependent on and hinging on the Jacksonville Jaguars and have all of us remember him as the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so I do think at some point he's going to get back into college football. I do think two years ago he turned down Texas because he wasn't sure what this NIL world and this one-time transfer world was going to look like. But I don't think Urban Meyer at 57 years old is going to stay retired for the rest of his life. I think he's coming back to college football at some point and because of it, I'm just saying, Steve Sarkeesian, win the games you're supposed to. Don't lose to Kansas. Don't lose to West Virginia. Don't lose to whoever. Because Urban Meyer's just kind of lurking in the shadows. And he is going to be back in college football at some point. And if you're Steve Sarkeesian, you do not want to wait. And you do not want to take the chance on some Texas boosters going rogue, going wild, and trying to bring in Urban Meyer. So I know I just said that Steve Sarkeesian I don't believe is on the hot seat, but let's get to number eight, the hot seat in general in college football. Uh, one of you sent this in as a mailbag question. At some point in the summer, we'll do like the definitive preseason uh, hot seat segment, but let's get into a couple of the interesting hot seat situations in college football heading into the year. And keep in mind, as I just said a minute ago, there were a lot of big time openings last offseason. USC, of course, fired Clay Helton, hired Lincoln Riley. LSU fires Coach O, brings in Brian Kelly. That leads to openings at Oklahoma. That leads to openings at Notre Dame. And then on top of that, Florida fired Dan Mullen. Miami fired Manny Diaz. Took me a second to remember who, who they fired. That's how memorable the Manny Diaz era was. But I bring it up, and I know I've said I bring it up a lot. Whatever. I don't think it's going to be a crazy coaching carousel this year, but there are three marquee kind of big-time jobs that come to mind in terms of the coaching carousel. Number one is Auburn, and if you remember back to the spring, Auburn is a crazy, crazy, crazy place. A lot of the boosters were trying to get Brian Harson out after year one, and I don't know if he thinks he's on the hot seat, but he's kind of on the hot seat because one, it's clear that a big contingent of boosters has already turned on this guy. They lost a lot of players in the offseason, 20-plus players to the portal. Now, they added some guys to the portal as well. But they don't have a big-time instant impact recruiting class coming in. He's lost a portion of the fan base. And as always, 
Auburn has one of the toughest schedules in college football, right? Like, like that is just a, the nature of being the Auburn Tigers. They and Tennessee are the only two teams every year that are guaranteed under the current structure to have Alabama and Georgia on the schedule. Well, Auburn is the same. And they open early with Penn State at home. They get LSU at home. They play at Georgia. They play at Alabama. And then in between, you got Arkansas coming off nine wins. You got Texas A&M. You got, Miss, uh, you got Ole Miss at Ole Miss. Auburn's got a brutal schedule. And Brian Harson, I mean, I think to definitively keep the job, I mean, we're talking minimum eight and four, probably nine and three. And does he have the team that can do that against the schedule that, again, at Alabama, at Georgia, Penn State at home, uh, at Ole Miss, Arkansas at home, Texas A&M and LSU at home, a brutal schedule for Auburn. I saw my buddy Josh Pate say this a few days ago. Auburn is the toughest job relative to expectations in college football, and we'll see. Can Brian Harson do enough to get to year three? In terms of other jobs that are hot seat, one, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, and I'm a Scott Frost guy, right? I, like, I actually do like Scott Frost, and I think he, I mean, I, I can't say I think he's a good coach at this point, but they were, you talk about an interesting conversation. The Nebraska Cornhuskers were fascinating last year. If you remember, this was one of the most mind-boggling things that I've ever seen. Nebraska finished 3-9, and 1-8 one and eight in the Big Ten, which sounds bad. Their eight losses, all eight came by under nine points, and seven of those losses came by a touchdown or less. So the first team in college football history to have nine, po- nine losses by nine points or less. Every game was a one-touchdown game. Here, here are some of the scores. They lose to Oklahoma at Oklahoma by seven. They lose to Michigan, who made the college football playoff by seven. They lose by three to Purdue. They lose by nine to Ohio State. And remember, they were driving to take the lead late in the fourth quarter in that game. They lose by seven to Wisconsin. They lose by seven to Iowa. I could keep going, but Scott Frost, he's got to turn some of those L's into W's. And they have the talent. They had the talent last year. They just have to learn how to win. And I do believe once they get once they get that mindset, once they learn that we can win, that we can close out a close game, I think it's going to be a snowball effect, and I think they're going to take off. The question is, are they going to be able to do that in time to save Scott Frost's job? Now, to Scott Frost and his staff's credit, another program that did really well in the portal, they added Casey Thompson, former starter at Texas as the starting quarterback. Uh, they also added a, a big defensive lineman from TCU, O'Shane Mathis, I believe is his name and how you pronounce it, a really, really talented player. They've added some other guys across the board. But when you look at Nebraska, they got to win, and not only do they have to win, I'll tell you this, they have to win in a hurry. Scott Frost, remember, he redid his contract after last season. It's hard not to redo the contract. He's lucky that he got the 2022 season. But I believe the buyout, if I'm not mistaken, goes way down on October 1. So basically, if Nebraska starts like 1-4 or 2-3 or something like that, it is going to be very easy for Nebraska's AD, Trev Alberts, to get out of that contract. So Scott Frost, Nebraska, is another one of the hot seat candidates. And then the other one I'd say, and I don't necessarily believe that this is a school that wants to make a move, but they might be backed into a corner, and that is Florida State with Mike Norvell. Remember, first of all, Florida State back-to-back seasons where they missed bowl games, 5-7 and seven last year, although they did play well down the stretch. But here's the other thing you got to remember with Florida State. Remember what happened to Florida State on National Signing Day? 
Remember that they had the number one player in America committed to the Seminoles? And the day of signing day, he flips, not only he flips, he flips to an FCS school, Jackson State, coached by a prominent Florida State alum in Deion Sanders. And so why that's important? I do believe that Florida State is trending in the right direction. As I said, they went from 3-6 and six in the COVID year two years ago to 5-7 and seven last year. They won. Uh, they started at one point they were 0-4. So you do some simple math. That means that they went, what, 5-3 and three down the stretch. They beat, they, they beat North Carolina at North Carolina, which is a pretty good team. They beat Miami. They won at Boston College. But this is a team. Mike Norvell. I think he's on the right trajectory. I don't necessarily believe that the administration wants to go through a coaching search, but you just lost the number one recruit to one of your most prominent alums. And I can tell you already, there is already a segment of the Florida State fan base that is working behind the scenes to get Deion Sanders to be the next head coach. Mike Norvell better win games and win games in a hurry. If he does that, he'll be fine, but he is another hot seat guy to keep an eye on. Really quickly, the other two big stories, I'm, I'm now at number nine. The first, Ohio State's defense. I think it's easy to forget, Ohio State did not make the college football playoff last year. That was Michigan. Why did Michigan make the college football playoff? It's because they punked Ohio State late in the year. Final score in that game was 42-27. to We all watched it. It was Michigan's first win against Ohio State in forever. And it really spoke to the fact that Ohio State's defense was a mess. They gave up 45, 42 points to Michigan, 45 points. They actually won the Rose Bowl, but they gave up 45 points and finished the year 59th in total defense. That is just not acceptable at Ohio State. You recruit at too good of a level. You have too much, you have too much success. Ryan Day shakes up the defensive staff late last season. He brings in Jim Knowles from Oklahoma State. And Ohio State's a fascinating team because the offense is going to be as good as anybody. Ryan Day's a great play caller. C.J. Stroud is a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback. Jackson Smith and Jigbutt, wide receiver, I think is a Heisman Trophy caliber wide receiver. But they got to get stops. I'm fascinated to see the defense. That is number nine. And then finally, number 10. Speaking of Ohio State, how about Michigan? We talked a little bit about Michigan a few days ago when C.J. Carr, the grandson of Lloyd Carr, committed to Notre Dame. Grandson of the legendary Michigan coach that commits to Notre Dame. But what I think it speaks to is what I've talked about really since February. Jim Harbaugh had this program in December at a place. The the program had never been in better position since he took over than in December of 2022, 2021 going into 2022. Then they lose the college football playoff game. Then he flirts with the NFL, the Raiders and the Bears. He puts it out publicly that he's interested Neither organization appeared to seriously have any interest in him. Then everything dies down. Then on National Signing Day, Jim Harbaugh goes and interviews with the Minnesota Vikings for a job that he was never going to get. And so I truly believe the analogy that I've used all winter and all spring and all summer. You ever read the book of Mice and Men? Remember Lenny? He had the little mouse in his pocket, and he loved that mouse, and he used to pet the mouse, and he loved it oh so much. And then he got mad. He squeezed the little mouse's brains out, and then he was like, what did I just do? And that's Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. He had the whole fan base in the palm of his hand. Everything was going great. He beat Ohio State. He made the college football playoff. If you remember back to last year, he took a massive pay cut. 
He gave the money back to the athletic department to people who lost their jobs. This guy was like Mahatma Gandhi in freaking khakis. And he screwed it all up by flirting with the NFL, flirting with the Minnesota Vikings. And then he also, kind of like George, they got a lot of breaks last year, right? Ohio State's defense was a mess. Uh, Ohio State, there's increasing. If you talk around enough about college football, there's a lot of people that will tell you. Ohio State, they had a case of, of, I don't know if it was the flu or whatever, that that program was a mess coming into Ann Arbor on that final, you know, that Thanksgiving week. Um, you know, they, 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 they frankly got lucky. They were down late against Penn State rally to win that game. So I just bring it up because everything went right for Michigan last year. Jim Harbaugh was really in a position that he had never been in terms of likability, not just in Ann Arbor, but on a national scale. I think to a degree he kind of screwed it up. And I'm just kind of curious to see what happens with Michigan. Now, I will say this about Michigan. Schedule, especially early, is very manageable. First four, Colorado State at home, Hawaii at home. My UConn Huskies, that's not going to be an easy one. They're at home, Maryland. Then you do go to Iowa. You get Penn State at home. No Wisconsin on the schedule. Michigan State at home and Ohio State at home. So you look at it, you look at it. Iowa and Ohio State are going to be tough on the road. But Penn State, Michigan State, Nebraska all at home. No Wisconsin. It is a manageable schedule. But man, a lot of stuff broke right for Michigan last year, and it'll be curious to see if they can maintain it. Whew! How about those 10 storylines? Who's delivering this kind of college football content for you in the spring? I mean, there's a couple guys and girls that are really good on this sport. But I just, I just basically summed up the entire 2020 college football season in about 35 minutes. So this is what I'm going to do. I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. And I do want to switch gears to college basketball. There was one big story this weekend. UNC picked up a significant commitment, a player that I believe could potentially put them in position to be the favorite to win the national championship. We also had a little bit of a surprising retirement in college basketball. We'll discuss all that next I do want to take a quick break, and I will be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. Hope everybody's having a great Monday final segment of the show. Let's switch gears. Let's actually talk a little college hoops. And this time of year in college hoops, there, there obviously, look, there, there isn't all that much going on. Obviously, season ends, we do the portal stuff, we do some high school reclassifications, a couple guys are still picking colleges, but you get to this point in the spring, and there's really not that much that is going on in the world of college basketball. Rosters are mostly set, all that good stuff, especially after the NBA draft deadline, which was at the end of May, early June this year. With that said, uh, there was actually two big topics that kind of popped over the course of this weekend, and especially one that I really want to get into. And it comes from our favorite topic that we cover all spring long, and it's the transfer portal. And obviously, this time of year, there really isn't that many marquee players left in the portal. Uh, as best I could tell, there might only be one left, Amani Bates, who I think we're all, we all think is going to go to Louisville at some point. We just don't know what's taking so long. But I bring it up to say, uh, coming into the weekend, there was another marquee player that was still in the portal that had yet to make his decision. And over the weekend, 
That player did, in fact, make his decision. His name is Pete Nance. First of all, I will probably call him Pete Davidson at some point during this segment, so forgive me, but I'm definitely not talking about Kim Kardashian's boyfriend. Definitely am talking about Pete Nance. Uh, for people who don't know his backstory, 14.5 points per game this year, 6.5 rebounds per game this year, 45% three-point shooting this year. He played at Northwestern. Um, son of Larry Nance, brother of Larry Nance Jr., and he has been in the portal for a while now. He was in the portal. He tested the NBA draft waters. Once it became clear he wasn't going to the NBA, kind of took his time making his college decision, which he did, in fact, make this weekend. And so the question becomes, where did Pete Nance, definitely not Pete Davidson, Pete Nance, where did Pete Nance decide to go to college? Well, drum roll, please. Oh, Pete Nance decided over the weekend to commit to the University of North Carolina, the Tar Heels. This is a mega commitment for North Carolina, and this, I believe, solidifies them as the number one team for sure, no doubt about it, coming into next season. Really exciting news, really fun news, and I think a very important piece of news that when we look back, uh, you know, we start to look ahead, I really should say, to the 2022-2023 college basketball season, I think this could be a, a piece of news that really has a trickle-down effect into February, March, and potentially early April of next year at the Final Four. So let's get into it. First of all, Pete, Pete Nance, and I did almost say Pete Davidson on accident. Pete Nance, really good player, like I said. Uh, you know, I think a couple things stand out to me about him. One, you know, a lot like his younger brother, Larry Nance Jr., really developed over the course of time in college basketball. I think we all think of Larry Nance Jr. as this NBA player, played with the Lakers, played with LeBron, but he was a player, it took him some time to grow into his game before becoming now an, an 8, 9, 10-year NBA vet. It's the same with his brother, uh, Pete, played at Northwestern, as I said. A couple things stand out. One is that he just got better every single year. Started his career averaging just two points per game in his first year at Northwestern back in 2018-2019. From there, he went to eight points per game in his second season, 11 points per game as a junior during 2020-2021, and then last year, as the face of the, uh, of the, the, the team, the program, 14.5 points per game, 6.5 rebounds per game. And as I said, what was really cool was to see his game evolve. Now, he was mostly, um, or he, he, he can have a back-to-the-basket element to his game. But as I said, this past season, this guy took 93 three-point attempts, and he made 45% of them, 45% shooting from a 6'10 big guy. By the way, the best guy on his team, so he was the focal point of all these scouting reports, still managed to average 14.5 on 45% three-point shooting, and that is who North Carolina is getting. And so why is this important for North Carolina? It's because I believe this guy is the missing piece to who they are and who they want to be in 2022-2023. North Carolina is a team that we talked about a lot over the course of the spring. Ever since really about the middle of April, when they had a bunch of guys announce that they were coming back, I have said that I believe that they are the favorites to win the national championship in 2022-2023, and I believe this only solidifies that. So first of all, four starters back off a team last year that made the Final Four, that was ahead in the national championship game against Kansas. They couldn't close it out, but four starters back. When you look at North Carolina, first of all, to me, I know Armando Baycott has kind of become the breakout star, was the, the, the runner-up for ACC Player of the Year. 
I do still believe it starts with Caleb Love. Basketball is a guard-driven sport. We saw that in the Final Four. 16 points per game, 3.5 rebounds, 3.5 assists, 36% three-point shooting. Caleb Love is back. I think he is going to be a first-team All-American type candidate. Same with Armando Baycott. 16.5 points, 13.5 rebounds. Really kind of a low-post big guy. And then you have other two other starters back. Leaky Black, kind of a defensive guy. And R.J. Davis, who's kind of a combo guard that can shoot, can score, can do what is ever asked of him. The one thing that Carolina was missing, and we talked about it all spring, they were missing that stretch four to kind of complete their team. Last year, their fifth starter, who is not back, Brady Manick, he was a transfer from Oklahoma, used that extra year of COVID. He comes in and has a huge impact on who North Carolina was and what they did last season. 15.5 points per game, but 40% three-point shooting from a 6'10 guy on the perimeter. And so the one thing this North Carolina team was missing, they have the low post presence with Armando Baycott. They have the guard play with Caleb Love and, and R.J. Davis and Leaky Black. The one thing they were missing was that four-man that can step out, stretch the floor, and hit threes. And I guarantee you that is exactly what Hubert Davis said. Hey, come here, be the missing piece, be the final piece on a potential national championship team, and we are going to let you do what you need to do to prove to NBA people that you are an NBA caliber player, that you can step out, that you can stretch the floor, that you're not just all the things that any 6'10 player in 2022, 2023 needs to prove he is going to be able to do that at North Carolina. And so when you factor in the four starters coming back, when you factor in a couple key players off the bench that are coming back, including Puff Johnson, who played really well in the national championship game, I really felt, I felt honestly, like North Carolina was the best team even three weeks ago at the NBA draft deadline, I don't even think it's debatable now. Now, some people will say, oh, Torres, they got on at the end of the year. You're giving them too much credit, and if they didn't make the Final Four, you wouldn't have them number one. Well, first of all, I would say I don't know if I even agree with that, and what I would definitely say is that it wasn't just like, like this is the thing about North Carolina that drives me crazy. I think there is this belief that, oh, they just got hot in the tournament and you guys all love them just like you loved UCLA last year. Well, what I could say is, first of all, UCLA, uh, to go back to a year ago, I did have them preseason number one. They were in the top ten all year. They were a, a stop or two, ironically, against North Carolina from playing in the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four. So let's stop acting like UCLA had a terrible year last year. But on top of that, I don't even think it's fair to compare last year's UCLA team, which made a Final Four and got a lot of preseason hype this past season, to this year's North Carolina team. Let me tell you why. That UCLA team was reeling coming into the NCAA tournament. That UCLA team lost in its conference tournament opener to Oregon State uh, and was one of the last four teams in the NCAA tournament. This North Carolina team wasn't perfect. It definitely took them a while. Yes, I was one of the guys that was criticizing Hubert Davis early, although he was awesome late. But when you look at this North Carolina team, it wasn't that they got hot in the tournament. They were one of the best teams in college basketball over the last two months of the season. I have dropped this nugget basically nonstop. But if you look at the literal last two months of the season, they were one of the best teams in college basketball. On February 5th, after their first loss to their only loss to Duke, their, their first game against Duke in Chapel Hill on Saturday, February 5th, they were 17 and 7. Or 16 and 7, excuse me. They finished the season overall at 29 and 10 overall, which means that from February 5th on, they went, I'm not great at math here. But that, that is a 12-3 and three record, if my math is correct. Over their final 15 games, they were 12-3. and three. One of their losses was in the ACC tournament. One of their losses was in the national championship game. And think about who they beat along the way. 
They beat Duke in their final game at Cameron under Coach K. They beat Baylor, which was a number one seed in the second round of the NCAA tournament. And then they beat Duke again in the final four to play for a national championship that they easily could have won. And so this idea that they were terrible all year and just got out of the tournament, it's just not factually correct. I believe this North Carolina team with four starters back, and remember, usually the teams that win at the highest level in college basketball, they're not the ones with the best recruiting classes. They're not the one with the best transfer portal classes. They're the ones that have really good players who come back for another year. Kansas last year with Ochai Abaji. Virginia a few years ago when DeAndre Hunter and Kyle Guy and all those guys could have come back and competed for a national championship. Baylor, which had the best team maybe in college basketball during that COVID year, bring everybody back the following year, win the national championship. And that Gonzaga team they played who was really good as well uh, brought back a ton as well. And so North Carolina, when I look at them, I, I think this solidifies them. This was the missing piece. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't even know how you can really make an argument for anybody else. I've seen a Gonzaga push by a lot of people in the media over the last couple weeks. And listen, one thing I don't generally do, I don't like to criticize other media members. We're all just sharing opinions and some of them are right and some of them are wrong and we all move on and have a day. I don't really get the Gonzaga thing. I know they bring back Drew Timmy, but they lost their probably their two other most important players, Chet Holmgren and Andrew Nemhard. They added a few pieces through the portal. Neither is as good as Chet or Andrew Nemhard. And basically, my assumption is if you think Gonzaga is the best team in the country, that means that you think there is going to be a massive leap, a massive leap from a couple freshman guards who were good but hardly elite last year, Nolan Hickman and Hunter Salas. Not saying that can't happen. I'm just saying that, you know, it feels like to assume that Gonzaga is number one, and like I said, I've seen some in the media really push for that over the last couple weeks. The assumption is that there's going to be some guys that make some massive leaps that I'm just not ready to, to say. I think Houston is interesting at number one. I don't think they're number one, though. I mean, they still have two guys that are coming off that have to be accounted for in Marcus Sasser and Tremont Mark. Arkansas, you know I love my Razorbacks. How about them hogs? Big pig invasion, all that good stuff. I think Arkansas is going to be really good. But they have 11 new scholarship players on this team, and it's going to take time. Don't, don't think there's any doubt they can get there by the end of the year. Don't think they should be ranked number one in the season. Kind of the same with Kentucky. They bring back Oscar Sheboy, but a lot of new pieces. Antonio Reeves, C.J. Frederick. How do all those pieces work together to make Kentucky a top team in the country? Creighton, kind of the same as Houston. I like them, but preseason number one feels a little bit aggressive. And so to me, this Pete Nance, definitely not Pete Davidson, this Pete Nance news, I believe, solidifies North Carolina as the number one team in the country. Um, barring something shocking, barring uh, you know Caleb Love deciding to go overseas and play this year or something, North Carolina will be my preseason number one team going into the season. Uh, and by the way, Caleb Love is definitely not doing that. North Carolina, my preseason number one team. Really excited for the start of the year. Uh, I don't know how much relevant college hoops news we'll get here until really September, October. But this is a big piece of news that, as I said, I believe can have some long-term repercussions for the Tar Heels and for all of college basketball into February, March, and April of 2023. Really quickly, there was one other piece of news from the weekend, and it's one, you know, I, I don't really have, like, an amazing hot take on it. I know sometimes, uh, you know, I, I think all the time you guys tune in to kind of hear my opinions and my thoughts on certain things. There was another kind of marquee head coach that, that stepped away this weekend, and I just want to give him some acknowledgement um, because he was awesome. He was great for the sport, and I don't believe he's, he's probably one of these guys that never really got the appreciation or respect that he deserves. Bob McKillop, the head coach of the Davidson uh, Davidson Wildcats, so he's been at Davidson now since 1989, okay? 
obviously most famously coached Steph Curry. Steph Curry was born in 88. Bob McKillop got there in 89. He announced his retirement at 71. He will be 72 in just a few weeks on July 13th. Um, and like I said, I don't think there's any like amazing hot take to have on this one. Um, you know, first of all, it, it's been funny to watch him on the sidelines the last few years. First of all, we all remember that Steph Curry run in 2008, just an unbelievable run to the Elite Eight. They lose to Kansas, who's the eventual national champion. But I, I remember thinking this, like watching Davidson a few months ago when I was watching them during the season. It's like, that guy was kind of old during the Steph Curry run a few years ago, a decade ago now, 14 years ago, and he's still coaching college basketball. So, so it felt like the time, um, it, 71 years old, he does pass the, um, the program down to his son. And what I would say is, like, I, I do think this is another example of a sport that we all love going through a changing of the guard. I'm not saying that he's Coach K. I'm not saying that he's Roy Williams. But what I would say is he is probably one of the best actually X's and O's basketball coaches in, in the sport. Never had a, a, you know, never had outside of Steph Curry, who he obviously identified and developed, never had the talent that those guys that I mentioned had. But this was a guy that consistently won a ton of games, obviously over the course of his career, uh, multiple, multiple NCAA tournament bursts, including most recently this past year. Developed some other really good players, by the way, Kellen Grady, who played this last year at Kentucky. Um, really talented uh, coach and a guy that was a great program developer and talent developer. He announced he's going to retire. I don't think there's any big thing. He's 71 years old. He's passing the program down to his son. Um, and, and I think he just thought it was time, right? And this is obviously, we've talked about it a ton, but it is a changing world of college athletics. I don't think like in, in Davidson's case, like there was some big like NIL fiasco where he got outbid by somebody and this is why. But I do think as college sports changes, I do think a lot of these guys are just going to say, you know what, I had my run, this is different, am I really wanting to gear up for the next 10 years and what is going to be coming in college sports? And I think Bob McKillop is probably another one that just said, you know, it's time for somebody else to do this. I go back to when I think about a guy at 71 years old retiring, I obviously go back to uh, actually Coach K at this time last year. And one of the things about Coach K, I think there was this like narrative of like, he hates the transfer portal or he hates NIL and he doesn't. And I remember like reading an interview with John Shire where he said, Coach K doesn't hate NIL. Coach K has been an advocate for NIL for years. But Coach K also knows he doesn't have 20 years left where he can um, implement an idea for the next five years about what NIL is going to look like with Duke and then evolve and change as times go on. And so this was his time. It was his time to step away. And I, I kind of get the same you know, idea with Bob McKillop. He's elevated the Davidson program. He took them to that Elite Eight with Steph Curry. He took them from the SoCon back in you know, uh, you know, several years. He started, they were, uh, like I said, in, in the Southern Conference. They go all the way up now to the A-10 where he has made three NCAA tournaments and really kind of reestablished that program where now they go from the SoCon, a one-bid league, small schools in kind of that Mid-South area to the A-10 where you're getting multiple bids. This year the A-10 did get two bids, uh, Davidson and Richmond, and he did an incredible job. Just one of the great coaches of his era, one of the great X's and O's guys of his era, and I'm happy that, that he was able to go out on top. 27 wins, 15-3, and three, an A-10 regular season title, an NCAA tournament berth where they did lose to Michigan State in round one. Uh, Bob McKillop, hope you enjoy retirement. 
like I said, there's no like amazing takeaway. There's no like amazing hot take to have. This guy was an awesome coach. He was part of, by the way, as I've said a couple times now, one of the great NCAA tournament runs ever when Davidson, led by Steph Curry, made the Elite Eight back in 2008. But he's decided to step away. I hope he enjoys retirement, and we will see where Davidson goes from here. With that said, I do think it's time for your boy Torres to get out of here for today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Really fun episode. Um, and what I would say is, first of all, you know, we, we're going to have our Wednesday-Friday staples. We'll have a mailbag on Wednesday. We'll obviously have Aaron Wright, Aaron Wrong on Friday. But if there's ever any topics that you guys want to hear about, any questions that you want to ha- want to have answered, uh, I encourage you to go ahead and hit me up uh, privately, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Obviously, also uh, feel free to always reach out to me via Twitter, via Instagram with questions there. Um, you know, this is that time of year where we're going to have some fun. We're going to do some different stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm always open to any suggestions or ideas that you have. I think some of our best segments have come from, you know, stuff that you guys and girls have recommended to me. Uh, I think back to that John Calipari, who could eventually replace John Calipari segment. That came from a question in the mailbag. Also came from Kyle Tucker writing about it, my buddy Kyle Tucker. But it came from a question in the mailbag. And so if you guys have any thoughts or ideas on what you'd like me to hit on, always feel free to do so. I do think, as I said at the beginning of the show, as we get closer to college football, I do think we're going to ramp up. i got some big plans for the show, by the way, uh, for the fall that I'm really excited to announce for you guys here in the coming weeks. With that said, though, I do want to get out of here for today. Fun Monday episode. Appreciate all your guys' support. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Uh, By the way, make sure to leave a rating and review. Go on Apple, leave a rating, leave a review. Really does help us move up those iTunes charts. So go ahead and do that as well. Uh, Yeah, and that's really all I got for today. Fun episode. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed. Leave a rating and review, and we'll be back on Wednesday. Shout out to Torque Crank. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, you F-head. JJ, call me, buddy. Let's get you on the pod. Let's make up. I'll be back on Wednesday. New episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Probably a lot of NBA draft stuff on Wednesday, by the way. Uh, I will be back soon. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.